Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich, also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're On Trial. Court is in session. Welcome to a Rattledge and Broadcasting Network presentation of On Trial. Tonight, we are putting a masterpiece of cinematic fare on trial. The Halle Berry, Sharon Stone uh, hit for all the ages. And when I say hit, I mean it was nominated for several raspberries, including Worst Picture, Worst Actress, Worst Director, and Worst Screenplay. They people loved it. Uh, Catwoman, 2004 American superhero film based loosely, loosely on the DC comic character. And I am one of your hosts, the mandated reporter, your pal Weezy, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radelich. And joining me in the prosecutor's chair tonight, what an easy job he has here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> easy meat. Uh, uh, easy picking. This is Sean Comer. How you doing, sir? Harvey Dent for the prosecution, my tallest. <laughs> All right, let's get into this uh, this thing. Now, we, we, we had an agreement before this that I can only mention Halle Barry, Harry Barry's uh Halle Berry figure. Once. Once. You, yeah, you, you get to mention her figure and the outfit as a plus once. That, that counts as some total I on the <laughs> I, on the other hand, oh, I can, I can spank the abuse of that element like a bad baby all throughout my case, all that I want to. I just want you... <laughs> from leaning on Hallie and her berries as <laughs> your as your one and only positive point of this entire ridiculous boondoggle of a movie. I'm going to say right off the bat, in, in earnest, and integrity is important to me. I think the core of this podcast has to be integrity. That if, the, that if the defense isn't coming from a place of some degree of honesty, then this just becomes stick and slob. And I have to say, I laughed my ass off at this movie. I, I watched it late last night. I <laughs> fell asleep, unfortunately. I was very, very tired. So I, I picked it up again this morning from where I left off, from hence I left. And I had a good time watching it. I, I'm not saying, before we get into the, the prosecution and defense, that uh, I would put this up against, you know, Richard Donner's Superman 2 or anything like that. I don't think I'd even put this up against Suicide Squad. But, I mean, look, I've watched a lot of movies since we started doing Long Road to Ruin and North Trial and Damn You Hollywood. And I have to say, I wasn't bored. I was entertained. Um, so... 
the arguments that I will put forward tonight do come from a place of honesty. I mean, there's, there's, there's some showmanship here, as, as there always is with me. But I, I, will, I will be speaking from the heart. Um, so right, right off the bat, let's just get the, uh, the, the, home, the housekeeping out of the way. As I said, Catwoman 2004, uh, DC Comics, Warner Brothers joint. That's very, 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 very recently. One might even say minimally inspired uh, by the Catwoman character. And really, this is supposed to be, they, they, were, they were trying to do, and, and Sean didn't get into details of it, they were trying to do more with the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman character from Batman Returns, and it just didn't work out that way. Um, but, you know, they thought they had themselves a, a hot property on their hands. So they went with this. Uh, eventually played by Halle Berry joint, and you know it is what it is. Uh, the thing made uh, it was budgeted about a hundred million. It didn't even make its initial budget, <laughs> so big time flop. We talked about already that it's already been you know it was nominated for a bunch of raspberries, and uh, Halle Berry herself said um, when she <laughs> she actually showed up in person to lecture her with her Academy Award in hand for Monsters Ball. <laughs> thank you for putting me. I want to thank Warner Brothers for putting me in this piece of shit movie. That was, so, that, you know, that, was a bit, that, that struck me as a very kind of uh, kind of Owen Hart moment of hers. <laughs> Showing up to accept the Razzie with the Academy Award in hand. Oh yeah, I think she should have owned that shit and be like, oh, I'm number one. <laughs> you know, just on a victory lap. <laughs> um, well, she, in her own way, she kind of did. Yeah. But um, it, this film is notorious for how much people hate it, and you know. And, and when I said I was going to defend this thing, people looked at me cross-eyed and said, "What? How? How could you possibly? <laughs> what? What's the plan here, Adelaide?" So uh, you shall find out shortly. All right, baby, hit me with some uh, some notes. Warner Brothers decided to announce their Catwoman spinoff in June 1993. Oddly enough, just as they were starting to move forward with development on Batman Forever, the third movie in their then-running franchise, which which was preceded by the absolutely, absurdly, fuck-you-money, ridiculous Batman, and the slightly less successful but still pretty well-received Batman Returns. Namely, almost anybody would argue the absolute most entertaining uh, successful aspect of Batman Returns was Michelle Pfeiffer's performance as Catwoman, despite the fact that it departed virtually entirely from every known aspect of the character from the comics, the 1966 TV show, the animated series, yada yada, so on and so forth. In fact, it was such a hit that there were plans right away to set her off into her own movie. In fact, Michelle Pfeiffer, for the time being, was going to reprise her role. Tim Burton was going to direct. And we had Denise DeNovi attached as as producer and a fellow by the name of Daniel Waters attached to write, all of whom were previously involved in Batman Returns. However, things started to fall apart a little less than a year later. By January 94, Tim didn't know whether he wanted to make Catwoman or if he wanted to adapt Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, by, on June 16, 1995, to pin it down to an exact date, Waters handed in his Catwoman script to Warner Brothers. Yay! 
Uh, problem was he handed it in the exact same day that Batman Forever was released, and while Burton was still on the fence about whether or not he wanted to direct. Uh, the reason Waters said it was arguably a mistake is because is because Batman Forever was the start of that era when Warner Brothers wanted to make a Batman that the whole gosh darn family can love, which we'd get later with Lego Movie. And, you know, he turns in what he describes as, quote, definitely not a fun for the whole family script. And as things progressed, by August, Michelle Pfeiffer was saying that she was still interested in the spinoff, but that now being a mother and having commitments to other projects, and as she would reveal later, really having not loved the whole experience of wearing the suit in Batman Returns, uh, she wasn't quite as sunny about her involvement as she was previously. The project would then spend years in development hell trying to get off the ground and also going through a couple of people who at one point or another were attached to play the lead role. Ashley Judd at one point was set to start started the lead as recently as 2001. She dropped out. Uh, Nicole Kidman was also considered after Ashley stepped aside, but that was also right around when the studio decided that they wanted to go with uh, recent Oscar winner, Halle Berry. Uh, we got uh, Academy Award winning costume designer Angus Strathy, who put together that outfit and said, I swear I'm trying to keep a straight face while I say this, <laughs> we wanted a very reality-based wardrobe to show the progression from demure repressed patience to the sensual awakening of a sexy warrior goddess. Oh, <laughs> bull-fucking-shit. <laughs> um, uh, Hallie actually went through quite a little bit of intense training. In fact, uh, she started, she took on uh, Harley Pasternak as a personal trainer in June 2003 to really get herself in shape for the part. And they even brought in, I swear, hand to God, I am not making up the following words to come out of my mouth, choreographer Ann Fletcher to develop Catwoman's signature style and teach Barry... How to Think Like a Cat. I wish to God I was making that up because I could just start making <laughs> random mouth noises and it would have got made more sense than we're going to bring someone in to teach you how to think like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, <laughs> but then, But then that brings us to Herr Director Pitoff. Yes, that's his name. Pitoff. Uh, yes, I know, I know. It sounds like the Homestar Runner spitting Teddy Grahams everywhere. But no, this strapping French lad was brought in to direct a movie based on one of DC's most iconic and beloved characters. Brought in a guy who just goes by Pitoff. 
think from now on, when people ask for my name, I'm just going to make a fart noise and see how it goes over. <laughs> but, uh, hey, uh, he came in with a vision for the movie. And I quote, Ahem. I checked out some to, to, to see how Catwoman is treated in the comics to make sure that our Catwoman was in the same vein. But I didn't want to be too influenced by the comic book because the whole point of the movie is to be first a movie and to be different. Different from Batman, different from Spooderman. This movie has its own identity. I try to find my sources more in the character of Catwoman Hotel. For me, the Catwoman we're filming now with Halle Berry is the continuity of the others. She's different than Michelle Pfeiffer's character. Different from anybody who's played Catwoman in the past, but she is Catwoman. When you look at the differences between the comic book Catwoman and on the TV or movie Catwoman, they are different, but there's a feeling that they are the Catwoman. Halle brings her own personality to her attitude and to the outfit. <laughs> no, no, folks, that's not me reverting to long road to ruin mode and doing shtick. Not entirely. That's an actual quote. Word for fucking brain damaged chimp word. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, uh,. That's where all that went, and now let's run this down by the numbers and see how Patu's vision of Catwoman went over. Well, for starters, on a budget of $100 million, $82.1 million. Ouch. <laughs> cold slap to the catnips. Uh, as for the overall critical response, <laughs> well, okay, let's be entire be entirely fair. Yes, it only made sixteen point seven million in its opening weekend in three thousand one hundred seventeen theaters, and yes, it came in third next to. Uh, Born Supremacy and iRobot. But it has a 9% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 179 reviews. 9%. Didn't crack double digits. Just missed. On Metacritic... 27 out of 100, based on 35 critics indicating, oh, this is a no-shit statement, generally unfavorable reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert ranked it as one of his all-time most hated films. Uh, As he put it, filmmakers gave little thought to providing Barry with a quote, with a strong character, story, supporting characters, or action sequences. Um, We'll get more into that once I uh, present my case, such as it were. 
this was also the movie that famously made Arizona Republic film critic Bill Muller recommend that Halle Berry give back her 2007 Academy Award. As Mark mentioned, seven Razzie nominations in 2005, including Worst Supporting Actress for Sharon Stone, Worst Supporting Actor for Lambert Wilson, Worst Screen Couple, Halle Berry, and either Benjamin Bratt or Sharon Stone. It won Worst Picture, Worst Actress, Worst Direct, Worst Director for Petui, and Worst Screenplay. And as Mark mentioned, she arrived at the ceremony to accept her Razzie in one hand, her Monsters Ball Oscar in other, and said, quote, First of all, I want to thank Warner Brothers. Thank you for putting me in a piece of shit, god-awful movie. It was just what my career needed. And, oh God, this was the one that really hurt my heart. There was there was indeed a Catwoman video game. <laughs> it got... It got mostly negative reviews, but it hurt because it it starred my it featured the voice talent of my dear sweet Jennifer Hale taking the place of Halle Berry. Oh, Femshap. No. Why did you have to be dragged down by this? But that's really that's really about it. About the only other thing I would note is that, uh, hey, every time you see Sally on screen, say hello to future to future star of Family Guy, Alex Borstein. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it uh, it gets slightly more tolerable if you just hear all her dialogue in Lois Griffin's voice. And all right. I'm sorry. And goddamn sweet cup and cakes, do I mean slightly? All right, so a bit of a plot synopsis. Uh, Halle Berry plays a character named Patience Phillips. Uh, Phillips, she's an artist and graphics designer for a uh, beauty product company, a cosmetic company named Hader Beauty. Uh, she, you know, she goes through all of the standard superhero uh, plot points. You know, she's a bit of a schlump and... She's uh, down on her luck, and she's abused and bullied, and um, she's demure and in manner, uh, which allows her to get bullied and all of that stuff. And, of course, she works for terrible people who do terrible things. Unfortunately for her, uh, those terrible things include, but are not limited to, making a face cream that will turn your skin to marble if uh, you keep using it. But if you stop, it'll peel off. Quick side note. Uh, there's a drug called Lamictal in the mental health uh, field where it will you know, help you with your depression and anxiety, but in a small percentage of people, it will also peel your skin off. I always enjoy telling that to people. <laughs> Anywho, um, so, yeah, if you quickly, if you stop using the product, your skin peels off. You keep using it, you become <laughs> you become a supervillain. Anywho. She accidentally discovers this, and because they want to release this product and make millions and millions of dollars, um, they, the, the bad guys uh, have her killed. And killed she is. However, um, throughout the first act of the movie, she's visited a few times by an Egyptian Mao cat, and this particular cat finds her washed ashore uh, and get, imbues within her 
the spirit of the Catwoman, and she is reborn as a Catwoman. Um, she finds this out from the cat's owner, Ophelia Powers, who is the professor, who uh, just really is there to give exposition on what in the hell happened to her and why it happened and all of that. Uh, so she realizes she's been killed, and you know, and the rest of the movie is figuring out why she was killed and then seeking revenge on those who did it. Along the way, uh, again, within the first act and leading into the second, she meets Benjamin Bratt, who plays the detective. Um, they meet, they fall in love. He finds out that she's Catwoman. She's framed for murdering her uh, bad guy boss, who is played by the same guy who, uh, oh, gosh, what was his name in the Matrix, this character's name in the Matrix? It doesn't matter. Lambert Wilson is the actor's name. He plays George Hedaire. And uh, he actually doesn't know about the side effects of, of the product. It's his wife, uh, Sharon Stone. Now, there's a, there's a plot, there's a subplot here where uh, Sharon Stone was the face of the company and, you know, and George Hedaire was the guy running the show. And he pushed her aside when she turned 40 and replaced her with this young chippy. So she's jealous and pissed off and bitter. Um, she sets, uh, she gets, she, she ends up killing him, sets up Catwoman as the patsy. Uh, Pat, uh, she gives herself up, ends up going to jail for a little bit. Um, and she realizes that, uh, you know, she's got to stop. She's got to stop them from putting this product out there. People are going to get hurt. So she escapes from her jail cell in a very funny sequence, in my opinion. I, I laugh my ass off at this. Uh, once the <laughs> after the cat comes back to inspire her, by the way. Um, there's a final there's a final confrontation uh, between her and the Sharon Stone character, uh, where you know where like a good villain, like all good villains, dies via falling after hanging precipitously by her hand, and. Uh, you know, she tries to save her, can't do it. She ends up falling to her death. Um, now, at this point, Benjamin Bratt knows that she's the Catwoman, and she decides that uh, she's, you know, she's cleared of all of her charges, but what to do about their relationship? And she decides that it's not going to work and that uh, she has newfound freedom as the mysterious Catwoman, and she was, she's going to continue to live outside the law. And that's how the movie ends. Uh, I'm not getting into all the stuff about the Alex Borstein character. She's mostly there for comic effect. Uh, you know, she's the best friend. <laughs> that's it. That's her role. Literally every plot point you've ever heard about the best friend role in any movie, that's what she does. All right. The prosecution makes your argument, sir. Thank you, Your Grace. little history lesson, folks. Catwoman was actually based originally on one of the original and to this day quintessential symbols of female sexual empowerment. 1930s film star Jean Harlow. She made an instant impression on Batman co-creator Bob Kane. As he put it, she seemed to personify feminine pulchritude at its most sensuous. Well, Ultimately, Bob Kane and Batman co-creator Bill, co-creator Bill Finger, I'm sorry, I wanted to make sure that I got his first name right, ended up creating 
a supervillain like no other that they had concocted up to that point. A foil for Batman like no other. A truly romantic flame, but one who could also match the Cave Crusader move for move in a head-to-head chess game. She wasn't a killer. She was conniving. She was scheming. She was Machiavellian. But she played both sides. She was Batman's antithesis. She was brilliant. She was capable. She was independent. Now flash forward a little ways. Flash forward past all of the, well, for lack of a better word, nunfuckery of the Golden and Silver Ages. And let's take a look at how her origin was reinvented by writer Frank Miller in Batman Year One. We instead meet Selina Kyle right around the time that Bruce Wayne has just started Batmaning. And at the time, she's surviving on the streets by her wits and by becoming a dominatrix. But at the same time, she also has, she's also desperate to break away from an abusive former boyfriend who also happens to be her pimp. At the same time, she's also in, char- she's also in charge of Holly Robinson, this young runaway who idolizes her, looks up to her. Selena Kyle is Holly's role model. But at the same time, Selena regards her as being far too young to survive her own on the streets the way that she does. So they share a home together. And ultimately, as Selena sees everything that's going, that's going on around her, she starts to fear for her life. Begins to study self-defense, the martial arts, and begins to realize that she wants to break free from this. She starts off with just a little bit of burglary, ends up don, donning a cat suit costume to conceal her identity, of course, one that her now former pimp gave to her the day that she, the day that she told him she was leaving. And there it is. You have an icon who's born. You have one who's physically capable, who's brilliant, who's headstrong, and the kind of character who owns her sexuality. As I would say, someone who almost weaponizes it, really. Doesn't rely on it strictly, but realizes its, a, its effect, recognizes its usefulness, and adds it to part of, her, part of her arsenal, part of how she survives. She embraces that aspect. This is one thing that Pitstein gets entirely wrong with his take on the character and that he might have gotten right. Well, as Burton might have as well. Well, actually, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to Tim Hay. That Pitu would have gotten right had he actually perhaps read a little bit more. And that is, he made the mistake of reducing her to that element. It's It's not an empowerment thing with her. It's not one aspect of her character that she owns and 
and embraces. All it is is it's just a suddenly jarring 180 that she goes through after a catastrophic accident and a weird incident where a cat belches in her mouth or something. (laughs) See, and there, this movie means to cop Tim Burton's origin story, which was a, a fucked up little bit of what the fucking fuck itself but at the same time, what Burton and, more importantly, what Michelle Pfeiffer really understood is that they crafted a version of Catwoman that took her femininity and made it an aspect of her arsenal. A sneaky, subtle little bit, little bit of it. A way to draw her foes into a false, into a false sense of security, especially if she was going going toe-to-toe with a male. That is not what this movie does. This movie dumbs her down to that. It dumbs everything down to that. Right down to the fact that we're talking about a movie that views makeup as a superpower. Super powered makeup. That's that, that's this woman, this supposed brilliant woman's plan behind how she's going to empower the women of the world with makeup. <laughs> oh ye gods! <laughs> you know. You know, you know what, though? Why stop? I'll tell you what. I've got this idea. I've got this great idea for, for a movie. It's going to blow your mind. It is going to revolutionize comic book movies as we know them. Here's what, I, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to make a movie about a hermaphroditic five-legged unicorn that shits explosive potatoes. And the entire score is going is going to be excerpts from Rigoletto, and she's going to fight a leprechaun with a fifteen-inch penis <laughs> because he plans to use his glittery jism to coat the world in his sparkly image, and nothing will ever be dull or matte-colored again. And I am going to call this movie Superman. <laughs> what? What? Don't laugh. You can't tell me that I can't do that. You can't tell me that I can't take something that begin to resemble what I'm, what I'm calling it and go ahead and call it that. It, it's my artistic vision. You can't crush that. It's my, it's my vision of Superman. If I want to say that Superman is a five-legged hermaphroditic unicorn, goddammit, Superman is a hermaphroditic five-legged unicorn, and you will embrace the fact that he poops explosive taters. (laughs) It's the problem. I'm okay with it. Hey, even better. I got a better idea. We are going to take 
DC's most iconic villain, one of the great, one of the greatest serial killers in all comic history, a madman, an agent of chaos, a clown prince of crime. We gonna cover that fucker in stupid looking tattoos. We're gonna give him a little Wayne grill. Gonna shove his ass into a gaudy looking sports car with underglow. And we're basically gonna basically going to make the Joker the juggle <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Apparently, we're allowed to just take anything, take anything we want to. Just say that it's this character or this thing, and everybody else is just supposed to accept that it is. Because the fact is, and it seems like we keep coming back to this: if you are going to continue to keep adapting these characters you lose the right to say, well, we don't have to adhere to canon because we're not because we're not making it for for the comic book fans or just for the people who read who read the comics. Bullshit. If you weren't, you wouldn't have such a hard on to obtain the license rights. You're clearly doing it so you can appeal to that audience. It's painfully obvious that you are, regardless of the fact that you've tried to extract everything else that would be in association with that property from this movie. And as I will demonstrate throughout this trial, by doing so, by going and trying to do something that he thought was fresh and different while completely ignoring the whole basis for the character and everything that made her appealing and everything that gave her the staying the staying power that she's had, he ultimately ended up setting the efforts to portray her successfully in her own solo movie and as a major character in any movie back quite possibly, arguably, decades. It will be irrefutable, it will be glorious. I probably got okay. that part of the trial wrong. I don't speak lawyer. <laughs> no, you're a witness. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> I want to thank uh, the prosecution for making part of my case for me. Uh, I don't need to go back over it again. He did an excellent job of saying that uh, we live in a creatively open some might even say relativistic world. And while I don't personally embrace the philosophy of relativism, uh, many people do. And so it is absolutely uh, a thing that can be done and is done to assume a licensed property, use it as an inspiration for a piece of artwork, and take it in any direction that you want. You read... Prosecution earlier read a quote from the director, and uh, you know he did it in his fun French accent, and that's fine. But I want to go back to it because what he says here is important, and, and it needs to be considered. So they checked out some of how they checked out to see some of how Catwoman is treated in the comics to make sure that our Catwoman was in the same vein. But I don't want to be too influenced by the comic book because the whole point of the movie is to first be a movie and to be different. 
And let's stop there. Yes, we have an accepted form of Catwoman, but I admit to you that the Catwoman in Batman Returns didn't look like no Catwoman I knew. It's maybe a bad parody of the Julie Newmar version of the character, but that's about it. It's still Tim Burton's reimagining of what the character should be. And people, and there were people who were fine with that. So again, why not use the character as an influence for a story you want to tell about a different kind of character? But let's talk about the movie itself, shall we? Let's talk about, and instead of always being so focused on the source material or what the expectations are, let us look. Let us look at what these hardworking professional individuals crafted for our amusement. And let's not be caught up in labels and titles. Things sometimes take on a new role that maybe was not intended. This might have been intended as an action-adventure piece. But upon reviewing it today, it occurred to me that this is actually a parody. It's one of the best parodies I've ever seen, actually. It's a parody of the superhero genre. It's a parody of the notes and the tropes that are complained about to this day in one of the most successful superhero franchises of all time, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What's the big complaint that everyone comes away with from a Marvel movie? Oh, Jesus. It's the same story told again and again and again. Jesus Christ, Doctor Strange is basically the magic version of Iron Man. I'm not saying I agree with that, but it's said. People say it. People believe it. People are are sick to death of the superhero origin story. It's one of the reasons people were so frustrated, one of the many people, reasons people were so frustrated with the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie. Other than the fact that they didn't get the character right, they were frustrated by the fact that this is yet another retelling of the same origin story. And Catwoman sends that up by doing exactly that. It is a paint-by-numbers to-the-letter superhero origin story with every single one of the tropes that people complain about today. And it was ahead of its time. In 2004, it was ahead of its time. It knew where the genre was going before the genre went there. Okay, it had had the original Spider-Man to look at. It had other movies... To, to look at as well, and they sent them up. They made fun of them with this movie. If you look at it through that prism, first of all, this movie is hilarious in its own right, but if you keep in mind that this is a parody of the superhero genre, it's even funnier to me. And to you. I, I beseech you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to watch this thing thinking about how ridiculous some of these tropes are and how overused they are and how Catwoman handles them. And I think you'll, you'll split your sides laughing. I really do. But let's, again, let's talk about the craft. 
Let us honor these people for looking at the picture that they made. Yeah, I, integrity and honesty is important here, and I think you need to give the devil his due. It's a very nice-looking picture. I have watched a lot of movies. I have complained a lot about direction, art direction, the look of a movie. And I have to say, Pitoff, for all the complaints you might make about this gentleman, did a very nice job of making a sharp-looking picture. There are some interesting camera angles that he uses. Uh, uh, there are there's vivid, uh, vivid use of scenery. I mean, a lot of the shots of the cosmetics building, I actually really enjoyed. I thought it looked great on screen. So, again, film being a visual medium, the film looks nice. There's, it's not an incompetently shot movie. Another example of how it's shot is there's a bit where after uh, Patience becomes a Catwoman, and I want to stress that, not the Catwoman, but a Catwoman, one of the many. When she becomes a Catwoman, there's a long shot of her on the phone traipsing about her apartment like a kitty cat. And I enjoy how that was framed. And I, and I give credit where credit is due. Halle Barry, uh, God bless her, was directed to act like a cat. And if you've owned a cat, you know there are certain typical cat movements. Um, There's just a way that a cat moves from, say, the couch to the table, to this, to that. And she was doing all of that. And it's not like it's edited in such a way. There's no quick cuts. This is all one long shot of her of the camera following her around the apartment as she's balancing on the couch and you know and, and walking around like a cat. Look, say what you will about this movie, but that was fun. That was creative. I enjoyed watching that. It made me smile. I got a giggle out of it. As far as performances go. Halle Barry was directed to act like a cat person. First, she's directed to act like a meek people pleaser, which I believe I... Look, we've seen Halle Barry in some very forceful roles. I watched the first act of the movie before she becomes reborn as a cat person, and I believed I was with her. I believed that she was this wimp that could easily be pushed around. I thought Halle Berry did a very good job of portraying the archetypal free superhero that's, again, just a, a schlump and a loser and, and a wimp. She played that to a T. The performance is at a minimum adequate and at best quite good. She handled all that well. When she becomes the cat person... Look, you can argue with the choice the director made. You can't argue with the performance. Calling her, giving her a, a raspberry for uh, worst actress, I think is unfair. And I'm not sure if it's her got it or uh, Sharon Stone. Um, I might, might have both gotten it. But, uh, but it's unfair. It's unjust. And I won't stand for it. She did what was asked of her 
in the character. I believed she's a cat person. And that's really what you she, – she ceased to be Hallie. I didn't see Hallie Barry. I saw cat person. Took, I never once got taken out of the film. As for the rest of the cast, you know, Benjamin Bratt plays archetypal detective in a superhero film, slightly befuddled, a bit let down. <laughs> if anything, he's a little less intense than, say, uh, you know, the, the same character, the same exact character in the show Arrow. Okay, or the same exact character in every other superhero movie where they're pursued by a single-minded cop. At least this one, you know, this one is actually halfway reasonable. So Benjamin Brad is perfectly adequate. You must give credit where credit is due. If the performance is adequate to good to excellent, you should call it that. And that gives the movie some degree of credit. This is not the worst movie I've ever seen by a long shot. And it's because of it looks nice and because of the performances, which brings us to our villains, Sharon Stone and Lambert Wilson. Lambert. Every time I, every time I looked at Lambert Wilson, all I could think about was his character from The Matrix. And other than being a little less French this time, pretty much played the same character. He was directed to be shitty villain guy. He was shitty villain guy. It's fine. The, yeah, he, he, you really could have taken that character and put him into any one of the recent Marvel movies. Wouldn't have missed a beat. Same character. That's more of an indictment of the Marvel movies than it is this one, by the way. As for Sharon Stone, restraint isn't a word you hear often uh, in movies these days. But I have to give Sharon Stone a lot of credit and teach off credit as a director. They could have gone over the top with this character, Laurel Hedare. There was some restraint in her performance. I don't think it's fair to say it's the worst performance. I don't think it's fair to give her a raspberry for this. I believed she was a 40-year-old, fallen from grace uh, beauty model that was bitter and angry and willing to commit murder by prostitutes to, to regain some sense of self. I actually liked her story as a villain. She's been cast aside, and she sees an opportunity for revenge, and she takes it. It's actually, in that sense, a refreshing change from the I thought of, think about the villain from Civil War. Think about Baron Zemo, who had things plotted so far out in advance, it became silly on inspection that if any part of this had gone awry at all, including things he couldn't have possibly planned for, the whole thing unraveled. She's just reacting. She's taking the card she's dealt, and she's going, hey, I can make cash out of it. That was a nice change of pace. There's not much to say about the story, because as I said, the story is really a send-up. The story is a mockery of the same exact story in your Spider-Mans and your other superhero movies, your Iron Man, your Doctor Strange's. 
I mean, it's all a lot of it's all, the bones are very much the same. It's the dressing on the bones that changes. Some might say. Lastly, and with long and with Daniel Hollywood coming up, I want to I want to go back to a gimmick that we go on there, but I I, I feel like. Doing so makes my argument stronger. So I'm going to go ahead. If it pleases the court, I'm going to go ahead and do this, but in reverse of what we do on Damn You Hollywood. And I'm going to preface this by saying just because most people don't like it or hate it doesn't mean it's bad. I'll say it again. Just because the mob doesn't like it doesn't mean it's bad. And there were brave souls that have come online, online, a cesspool of hate and villainy like no other, and stood against the wind to give this thing a fresh review on Rotten Tomatoes. And I would like to share some of those with you now. (laughs) That this thing is not the the, uh, abhorrent creation of nonsense that everyone seems to think it is. And even if everyone does seem to think, that doesn't make it true. So, if you don't like my argument, why don't you listen to Daniel Etherington from Film 4, who said it's not as over the top as you might hope, but also not as bad. Daft and moderately entertaining, and you're so right, Daniel. You're so very right. I was moderately entertained by this thing. I giggled this morning when I watched it. And what should a movie do if not make you giggle, entertain you? Christopher Smith of the Banger Daily News says, widely considered a terrible movie. But if you enjoy the camp genre, it's a must-see. My point exactly, Christopher. My point exactly. It is, in fact... Catnip. It isn't that camp on a catnip high. B minus. Christopher Smith of the Banger Daily News. Uh, Jules Brenner of Cinema Signal says, a milking of the mediocre, but after this fall from grace, Barry's got eight career leaps to go. Let's move on past that. Uh, Vince Kohler was pleasantly surprised with his new outing for Halle Barry. Yes. He does a fine job here. This should be pleasantly surprising. Uh, Jeffrey M. Anderson of Combustible Celluloid says, "This hilar- these are real reviews, people. This hilarious, sexy, exciting fart, did I mention this was a parody, is instead so consistently surprising and dazzling that I'm still not sure if it's a good, bad movie or a good, good movie. Exactly. Exactly. Open your heart and I'll make you love me. And I will also make you understand that if you open your mind, you will see that we've been looking at this movie all wrong. It's standing to being a terrible comic book movie. It is, in fact, not guilty. It is, in fact, a brilliant parody of a comic book movie. Michael Estelle of the San Francisco Chronicle, he's a top critic, ladies and gentlemen, says it's an odd, idiosyncratic movie, dark in look and dark in spirit, that plays as a kind of pop culture investigation into the meaning of feminism. 
and the options open to women in the modern world. He gave this three out of four stars. Three out of four stars, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Terry Lawson of the Detroit Free Press, also a top critic. Catwoman isn't really bad enough to be one of those awful movies you can't resist, nor is it incompetent enough to be the female daredevil. I would agree with that. And I'm going to end this with about.com Fred Topple, because I think this sums up the whole thing. And if you haven't seen the movie to get, the, to get where he's coming from, after I've convinced you that this is a brilliant movie that you really should get through, uh, go, go back and watch it just so you can understand what Fred Topple of about.com is trying to tell you. They had me at the random basketball scene, the defense rest. Oh, you talk like a GSP. You have hit me in the face with the crotch of your argument. Oh, 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 he's so bad, he's good. Why didn't I see that? Oh, well. <laughs> Bottle my bottle my croissant and call me Chicago. Oh, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> See, all right. <laughs> I must. I have no choice but to give my counterpart the mincing, mealy mouth C3PO to my awesome, immortal R2-D2 is due. He did make a couple of good points. I have to admit, (laughs) I really cannot fault Halle Berry for this one, and not even for the reason you might be thinking, that I go along with her by saying that Warner Brothers forced her into a terrible movie. Now, you see, the fact is, this movie, to Halle Berry's credit, displays that she was much, much, much more actually than Brian Singer allowed her to be in X-Men. Far more. She's every bit capable of carrying a comic book superhero movie. She has the physicality. She has the poise. She has the presence. She has legitimate acting chops. In fact, if you had taken this and made this a legitimate Catwoman solo movie, I would have been nothing less than thrilled to see Miss Barry play Selena Kyle. Nothing would have made me happier. Unfortunately, the problem is, at the same time that this movie showcases that, it also wastes it, and it wastes it in absolutely egregious fashion. Egregious, shameful fashion. Like the way that the entire first Fantastic Four movie wasted a bunch of good performances with the exception of Jessica Alba. Or the way that Mark Steven Johnson's Daredevil really took what was <laughs> I have to admit a scene stealing performance by Colin Farrell as Bullseye 
and chucked it into a dumpster fire. <laughs> it took a shockingly capable little bit of work, good bit of acting, and wasted it on something that was unfortunately different, but not in the way my compatriot would have you believe. See, here's the thing about the word different, and he got that right as well. This is not your standard comic book superhero movie. But different does not mean bad. Different does not mean good. All that different means for certain is that it's not the same. I mean that in the sense that just because you set out to do something differently does not mean that you're going to do it better. And you know, I'll even say this. I would not be opposed to a Catwoman movie with some comedic flair to it because the character has been played for laughs before. But, but it was done that way by writers and artists who had a sense not only for her, but the characters that she was at, that she was working around and did it in such a way that Selena Kyle, that Catwoman, was still funny, still down to earth, but still felt like Catwoman. I would point you towards any, and consider this a recommendation, by the way, any of the recent comics that have featured her alongside the likes of Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn. All of the characters feel like themselves. And yes, you know, I, I will agree with Pitov that um, everybody has portrayed Catwoman differently in their own way. They've added their own uh, their own flair to it. Eartha Kitt and Julie Newmar, they, they added their their own touches to it, along with Lee Merriweather, of course, on the 1966 Batman television series. All of them becoming synonymous with the role along the way, and arguably career-defining even, some would say, especially in Eartha Kitt's case. You look forward and... God, I feel like I'm going to get skewered probably by Alexis if she hears me say this. Um, I believe it's uh, Gray Delisle who voiced Catwoman in the animated series. Again, her own distinctive touch. The power in her voice, but the the flirtatiousness, the sexuality, the slight little smoky quality to it. It was her own touch. You look at the comics, and you'll find numerous artists, so many different artists who have ever drawn Batman, so many writers who have ever written Batman, have depicted her in their own ways, a little differently, a little different touches here here and there. Uh, Arguably, I would say that my favorite depiction has been from Batman Arkham City. 
where she embodies, I think, everything that Bob Kane would have meant her to be, but with just the right touch of Frank Miller's hardness and capability and bravery. So, yeah, there are ways to do it differently, and you could have done it differently so that it was intentionally funny, but (laughs) here's the thing. This was obviously not meant to be a farce. This was obviously intended to actually be a good action thriller that was trying to be humorous in places. And when I say trying, I mean trying far, 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 the, the cat jokes. Oh, God. All the stupid motherfucking cat jokes. And she walks up to the bartender and orders a, orders a white Russian, hold the Kahlua and hold the whatever else. So she basically orders a glass, orders a glass of milk. Okay, objection. Objection. I have one objection. Restraint was used in the amount of jokes they did. There were far, far less of that sort of thing. She, she, she rolled her R's once. She did the bit with the white Russian. And for the most part, they kept the cat jokes to a minimum, at least in comparison to Batman and Robin, where there's a great example of going overboard with that sort of thing. I think a lot of restraint was shown, quite frankly. Your holiness... If I kick you in the dick five times, do you praise my restraint if I don't rear back for a six? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let the record show the defense is a few fries shy of a happy meal. And clearly has a thing and clearly has a thing with letting people play fourth and long with his daddy bag. I'm just saying anyway. the holy hand grenade. The holy hand grenade tells us there is a certain number for a certain thing. One more is too much, one less is too little. One day, Phoenix Wright, you and I will meet in person and I will test this theory. And I wear heavy boots, sunshine. Anyway. So... Yeah, guess what? We have we have an unintentionally so bad it's actually funny movie. Yay! Hey, guess what? Uh, taking a movie where you tried to do a good good job and it ended up being shit. There was another Euro trash director who tried to do that, and not one single fucking person bought it when he said it either. It was Tommy Wiseau, and no, to this day, nobody buys that the room was supposed to be a comedy. <laughs> His best friend was in that movie, and in a book about it, he shot that shit right the fuck down. This was a movie that was meant to capitalize on a character that was featured in a, some critics even said, shockingly dark and violent Batman movie. And you're going, 
and you're going to turn around and try to tell me, oh, it's supposed to be a farce. It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be lighthearted. No, don't piss on my head and tell me, hey, let's go eat the yellow snow. (laughs) Deadpool was a superhero farce because there was some respect for what that character is intended to be. You can have comedic moments in superhero movies where, yeah, you maybe poke a little bit of a little bit of a jab at it, um, have a little fun with some references or some fan service or some fan service. This was just over the top stupidity by somebody who clearly didn't know the character well enough to know what they were doing in terms of how to make it funny while still finding a way to make this character appealing and still finding a way to be true to it and finding a way to increase its value. And that is arguably one of its greatest overarching sins. And by it, I mean this movie as a whole. Is the fact that yeah, you made something that was so bad that it goes around the bend and transcends to the point where it's actually unintentionally good in a hilarious kind of way. But the problem also being is you gave way too much ammunition to the way wrong trigger-happy party. Hollywood executives. What's worse... Oh, Paul Bracy, you gave it to Warner Brothers executives. Arguably the dumbest fucking pistachio brains of the lot. Because, you see, the whole problem is, ever since then, if you look at superhero movies that have been made since 2003 you'll notice there have not been a whole lot that have been led by female heroines or even very many that have strongly featured female villains. And that's despite the fact that there are so, so very many that have been dying for a good movie for so long. I mean... Yeah, granted, Fox tried with tried with Electra, but that was a fool's errand in the first place. Two words, Jennifer Garner. <laughs> Actually, scratch that. I, I object to myself. I object to myself. <laughs> Alias was awesome. Gonna... I want. I want to pay respect to my, Pay respect to myself. <laughs> yes, um, I object to my to myself. I censure myself. One more remark like that that besmirches a character who carries such an excellent ABC drama that gave rise to shows like to shows like Veronica Mars and I will find myself in contempt of court and I will owe myself an ice cream tea latte. Venti. <laughs> with four sweeteners. Preferably on my Starbucks gift card. Anyway. You take a movie like this that performs this badly as this notorious, notoriously bad gets absolutely shredded by critics and fans alike, has such ungodly, horrible Metacritic and Rotten Tomato scores, and it becomes an excuse, albeit a flimsy one, but still one that studios will throw out there for why the people holding the power and the purse strings and the pens will not 
green light female driven movies. They will try. They will point this out and say, Oh, look how poorly it drew. Look how bad the movie was. People just don't want don't want to see women in leading roles in comic movies. And it becomes one more justification for why we don't have a Black Widow movie. Why we're just now getting a Wonder Woman movie. Why the hell we don't have a Miss Marvel movie. Why I have not gotten my unbeatable Squirrel Girl movie. And so hence, thank you, Petorf. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for putting the bullets in the gun for them. But, uh, you know, we've talked about the big picture. About it. Just uh, just about enough. Let's move on and talk about the actual movie itself. Shall we? This is supposed to be a movie that's, uh, that's about female and female empowerment and empowered sexuality. No, 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 it, it, it really isn't because that is where it shows absolutely no restraint. Its idea of showing empowerment is we're going to take out take Halle Berry and strip her down to fetish wear. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's about it. It's, it's, there for, it's there for eye candy. It's not remotely practical or held, or held back anyway. So what reason would there be for any vigilante to dress that way? I ask you, I mean, uh, it's Jackson, all kind. I, I have an answer for that question. If you, ask any, uh, if you have any uh, expert, and I happen to know one, in kink and fetishes, someone who actually I believe is a doctorate in uh, uh, kink and fetishism within the mental health milieu, uh, would tell you that uh, leather is empowering and that the whole uh, becoming a catwoman was an empowering uh, metamorphosis for her that was actualized and made uh, physical by the use of leather. It was also a uh, it was also a, a, a uh, <coughs> sorry a uh, mentioned in the movie that I mean it, you gotta give credit again where credit's due. They men- they say in the movie, hey, I gave you that outfit to wear, you know, on a date or whatever. And she says, oh, I'm never going to wear it. I, that's not me. That's crazy talk. And so when she has this conversion where basically her id comes, comes out of her and becomes her identity, a manifestation of that is that outfit. Is it practical? No. But, I mean, come on. They only started using practical outfits for superheroes uh, post-Iron Man. But prior to that, it was... They just ate whatever was in the comic book to the best of their ability. And, and it looks silly. That's why they stopped doing it. Okay. Like X-Men all wear black cer- leather. Okay, and you know what? To a certain extent, knowing that I also have a friend of mine who would have probably also chastised me for that same statement, having a similar, I want to say measure, but a similar kind of expertise. Okay. 
I will withdraw that much, and I will redirect slightly. <laughs> yes, I will grant that was a nice gesture, and perhaps maybe even one of the movie's few genuine moments of putting some actual thought into its character. But the problem is, it doesn't really do much to develop her beyond that, or even before that. Whereas, if you're going to set something like, like that up, okay, you have yourself an opportunity. You might, you might actually be on the right track to having something worth saying. But they don't. Far and away, vastly, it's just simply, oh, she go simply a woman going from a shy, slightly nerdy graphic de- graphic designer to just all of a sudden being a sultry, slinky cat person with nothing else in between, nothing else really explained, nothing else really explored, no subtlety. To the to the character as she goes through this this transformation, it's just boom zero to fetish wear. <laughs> That's it. That is not oh. really trying all that hard to make a point. It's not trying <laughs> that hard to make the point that you would have anybody believe that you're trying to make. It's just simply a matter of the fact that. You know you have a flimsy movie. Yeah, okay, maybe it looks good. But when it comes to modern movies, that's par for the course. I mean, that's that, that that's almost not even praiseworthy. That's like praising the overall graphics of a modern video game. I mean, I would say that it's up to the standard of being a fairly good-looking movie for its time. Yeah, it's well shot. But it doesn't make an attempt to really make the character its own, to try to establish anything and set anything up with any ambition as far as telling a bigger story that maybe people might want to see retold in a future movie. There's no attempt at that. I mean, hell, Daredevil actually developed its character a little bit. Ghost Rider managed to develop to develop Nicholas fucking Cage as Johnny Cage ever as Johnny Cage. <laughs> <laughs> and now and now I just want to see a movie that's nothing but the Nicholas Cage doing the that's and punching Wes Bentley in the penis. <laughs> oh, <boy>. oh, fuck. <laughs> Johnny Blaze. <laughs> oh, God. Next next Mortal Kombat movie, it better stars Nicolas Cage, or I swear to Zod. <laughs> I'm going to play I... Jax. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, but that's about as ambitious as this movie gets. And really, it 
the part that puzzles me is we have a movie in which Michelle Pfeiffer was meant to reprise her role from Batman Returns. Okay, so I'm confused here, Mr. Scribe. Were you going, if this is really, in fact, your script, uh, and I wonder how much of this was re- was really his, was your plan just to have her redo the entire origin story? Oh, I think when once they lost Michelle Pfeiffer and they had to recast, I think they that's scrapped when it. they went back. Yeah, I think whatever the original plot, this, it, this was originally supposed to be a spinoff of Batman Returns. Once they lost Michelle Pfeiffer, I think they mothballed the whole thing, started from scratch, and it became its own entity. Okay, well, as long as we're talking about the story, though, although I withdraw my previous statement, here's what I don't understand. You have this goofy-ass, whimsical story that pretty much rips off the whole origin of... Michelle Pfeiffer's character in Batman Returns. Objection. Yeah. Not a ripoff. Not a ripoff. The cat imbues, and and I and I am insulted by the word belches. By the way, it imbues the essence of the Catwoman in Halle Berry's version. In the Tim Burton version, she's bitten by a bevy of alley cats. Well, gee, thank God the cat in this version didn't do what a real cat would do and just stick its pucker right up in Halle Berry's face. <laughs> God only knows I'm what just, kind of cat woman we would have gotten then. I'm just saying, let's you know, accuracy plays a role. In one instance, you have a cat, a lead cat, a specific cat that is carrying on the tradition and the essence of the Catwoman all the way from ancient Egypt. Okay, this thing is the uh, familiar of the god, if you will, Bat, B-A-S-T. And in the Tim Burton, there's no, there's none of that. It's just a bunch of alley cats biting her. And well, yeah, somehow, well, yeah, and, I was... And through their, like, cat, cat saliva, she is somehow well, reborn. Well, yeah, as, as I was saying, as I was saying when you objected, I was starting to say they just amped up the whimsy of it. That's part of cranking up the up the whimsy is oh she oh she breathed in Mr. Cuddle's morning breath <laughs> and now all of a I sudden see. she has magical cat powers again fuck knowing uh, keep in mind uh, up until my recent bout with singledom I lived with someone who had two cats I know about how they treat human space when they when they want something it was 50-50 that she wasn't going <laughs> that she wasn't going to have her nose stuck up Chairman Meow's rosebud <laughs> when, when he decided to share his fancy feast with feast with her through the exit door. Imbued, imbued with the essence of the cat woman from ancient Egypt. Yeah, imbued with the essence of the cat part. Um <laughs> listen to just because, just because you, you don't like the, the ancient Egyptian religion doesn't mean it's not a good thing. Well, and also, it's not even a very accurate portrayal of her as a cat person. 
okay, yeah, you got the obvious stuff, but at no point did I see her rear back and give Benjamin give Benjamin Brad a nice friendly headbutt. <laughs> where was that? You know, where was the part where, you know, they go and do the go and do their little humpity bumpity and he wakes up to all of a sudden find that she's curled up in a sock drawer. <laughs> well, objection. There are several scenes where she's sleeping on a shelf. On a shelf, yes, but there is no scene where she finds a box. You can't tell me <laughs> that at no point does she come across a box and just all of a sudden just curl right up and make herself at home. You know, it's only a 90-minute movie. There's only so much time for this sort of thing. Oh, yeah, they were probably saving that for the sequel. Exactly. Catwoman, revenge, Catwoman, revenge of the laser pointer. <laughs> Catwoman versus the Catwoman versus the sneaky cucumber. Ooh. <laughs> But all of these points aside, this movie barely tries and accidentally stumbles upon getting something half-assed right. But the problem is, in all the efforts to try to make this movie so different and stand out and be so different from one so stupid little comic book, <laughs> on the other hand, you had so many other stories that you could have told if you would have just paid attention. I mean, you, you could have taken just about any number of issues and called a story that would have been better than this without trying to be so damn overtly silly. Yes, it was different. Yes, it didn't want to be exactly like the comic books and it wanted to put its, own, put its own spin on it. But you have to know the rules before you can break them. And this was a team that possibly, aside from Halle Berry, had no idea what the rules for this character were, so it had no business trying to break them. And it illustrates that different means neither good nor bad, but it definitely means not means not the same. The prosecution rests. All right, and that brings us to the end of uh, this podcast. I, I will say, in summation, in all honesty, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, look, I've seen worse. Robert, yeah, if if Robert if Robert Winfrey, who I'm sure is listening to this, were here right now. Uh, you know, he would tell you this was the worst thing ever captured on celluloid. It is an insult to people with eyes and who have cats. You know, but but here's the thing: Robert has a very low tolerance for anything that is like remotely stupid. So, and, and there's a lot of stupid in this movie. And, and I, however, yet he and I are huge invaders. Well, and yet he and I are such huge Invader Zim fans. Yeah. Which one of these there, days? There are- which one of the? Which one of these days, Mark? TV party. Robert and I are going to bring you in on this. 
Okay. I'm open. Um, but, I mean, the, the point that I was getting to was I, I historically have a very high tolerance for a lot of nonsense. Um, I, and, I, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here. Just, this is just an example. Look, I like last year's Ghostbusters. Um, speaking of white studios, shit can um, female-centric movies. Um, look, I liked it. There was, a lot, there was a lot about that movie that I know annoyed people. Um, but there, there was a lot about it that I, that I enjoyed. I legitimately was entertained by it. Uh, and Robert and I argued about it pretty, you know, and we, and we really, it was one of those moments where we just sort of looked at each other and said, we are different people. <laughs> and, say, and we can both look at the same stimuli and come to wildly different uh, conclusions about it. And, you know, so something like a Catwoman, where it's, it, it, it's a dumb movie. Look, it, it's, I'm not arguing or, or for even logistically defend that this thing is high art. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's it would have to improve pretty damn greatly to be dumb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like I said, I laughed at part. Not about the, you know, like a white Russian minus the vodka. Perfect. You know, not oh, the vodka. <laughs> there were other things in the movie, though, that I thought were damn funny. I know um, I was entertained by a lot of it. So, as I say about comedy, you know, comedy has one job. It's to make you laugh. If it doesn't make you laugh, it fails. If it makes you laugh, it succeeds. And it doesn't, and I don't care if it's Will, Fel- Will, Will Ferrell in Step Brothers, you know, or it's the Kentucky Pride movie. You should not, not, these things should not be, you know, a thesis on astrophysics. They're meant to be entertaining. Mm -hmm. And as Robert would say, your mileage may vary on what it gains you. So is Catwoman for everybody? Oh, God, no. (laughs) Probably not for most people. But I dare say that non-comic book fans who have an investment in the character who sat and watched this thing would probably think it was fine. They, 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 would have, they would have no emotion about it one way or the other. It would probably be moderately entertained. Yeah, and, and, but you know what? The whole thing is, though, is I do know the character, and I can't change that. I, I can't entirely change my, my prism through which I view the movie. And, um, and, that's, and that's fair. And, and well, and, and, and as a comic fan, you know what? I would love, I would absolutely love to one day see a great Catwoman solo movie. Um, I think that would be something that would be truly groundbreaking because not only would you have a movie, as I said before, that would join the very few that have had a a female main hero or a fe- or a female supervillain. Um, you would have one that features a female anti-hero and uh, could almost be argued would be the first movie to ever really be based wholly on a villain rather than a hero. Well, you accept the Uh, Gotham City Sirens movie that has Catwoman in it. You mean the one, you mean the one they're making now? Yeah. Uh, only technically because I'm still utterly convinced that movie is going to blow goats. <laughs> um, you're, you're probably right. I, I, Warner Brothers is glutton for fun. Why? How is it that the, thing that the, the team at Warner Brothers can, can competently put together Harry Potter movies to this day, but the team working with DC 
can't seem to get their way, find their way out of a wet paper bag. Well, no, you, you know the. That's actually not even what Stuart and I wondered about on the most recent FPG News Rantcast that he and I did. We marveled that somehow – marveled, <laughs> DC. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, we, we were just gobsmacked that somehow DC manages to knock it out of the park like 95 times out of 100 with their animated stuff. I'll say they've gone downhill since they started making everything new 52-focused, but for the most part, it's still pretty damn strong stuff. Um, uh, their their full-length animated features and their series are both excellent. Uh, Arrow and about 50% of Legends of Tomorrow aside, their TV shows uh, <laughs> turn out to be consistently excellent. What the hell against 50% of Legends of Tomorrow? I've enjoyed that show immensely. It was... It was all right. I mean, I, I liked about the first the first half of it, but it really lost a whole lot of steam and has never really entirely sucked me back into it. It's, it's still good. Um, the Flash, I think... I, I think that bunch can do damn near no wrong. Yeah, uh, I and I'll even be entirely fair to Arrow and say, when it's good, it's really fucking good. When it's bad, they can't make it any more obvious that they're just trying to get around the fact that Warner Brothers slapped them on the wrist and said, "No, you can't have Batman." Um, have you? And they just insisted. Move to the. I'm sorry. Have you watched Supergirl since it moved to the CW? Okay, now that would be another one that they pretty much nailed. I really enjoy Supergirl. I, in fact, I'm Good. surprised at how much I, I enjoyed it because that's not a character that I exactly go gaga over. But I was shocked at how good it and how good it really was, and I'm glad that it found a home on the CW because I, I think even the brass at CBS would have realized that it would have just languished there. Um, season two is so much better yet, than season one. Yeah. And yet, aside from most of the Nolan trilogy, they can't seem to get live action right somehow. And I I just don't understand why. Well, okay, and, and I'll even go a step further. Um, we, we talked about the shows. We talked about the animated stuff. The video game. I have an answer for you. Hang on, I'm not done. Okay, go ahead. Hang on, Sunshine Bear, I'm not done yet. The four Arkham games. Well, okay, correction, I've only played three out of four of them, but I've heard just about nothing but good things about Arkham Knight. Um, uh, Pretty much entirely nailed the spirit of Batman. Um, uh, The first Injustice... Uh, is one of my favorite games of all time, and I am stoked as all fuck for Injustice 2. Uh, I would I would just about shove all my money into a pneumatic cannon and fire it at, at, at WB Games and NetherRealm Studios if that could only come out just a little bit sooner. So I'm aching to play that. Um, and yet you can you can get 
all this stuff right, and you're even doing marginally better with the comics. And yet, every time you retarded wank pheasants go to make a live-action version of one of your properties, I'm terrified of the fact that they've now got a Nightwing movie in the works. Because I would want Definitely a Nightwing movie it. to be so... I would no, I would want that to be good because I love the Nightwing web series, uh, the the fan series that um, a bunch a bunch of cats raised some money and got to do on YouTube. That was really good. I liked that. I was I was moderately excited for the fact they were going to uh, to do a Titans series on TNT because holy shit, live action Titans, bring it on. But. Now I'm just, I, I just don't get it. What is it about trying to tell a story in two hours with, for really real, these people that just makes you fuckers shoot yourselves in the crotch? <laughs> All right, this is a two-part answer. Uh, the first one, <clears throat> and I'm oversimplifying it just for the sake of time and I, I really I don't know the further details of it, but basically, you're talking about four different divisions, one of which is split with another company. So you have the CW, um, which is hosting uh, DC slash Warner Brothers content on their network, and CW is a partnership between CBS and Warner Brothers. Uh, and basically, they they're on an island. You know, they've got their own producers and writers and everything else, and they basically were told, go do shows for CBS that, that are going to air on the CW. No, you can't have Batman. Otherwise, go do your own thing. Try not to fuck it up. And so they just sort of exist on an island separate from the Warner Brothers movie, live-action movie division. If you ever hear the, the animated group talk about that, talk about themselves, they don't interact with the movie division at all. Warner Brothers Animation... It's its own thing, operates independently, and, you know, they don't have the interference that, uh, from the movie executives that the live action does. And then games is, is games. Again, its own thing. So, you know, part of the reason why you have all you have three examples of superior product uh, versus the one that's inferior is the one that's inferior is controlled by the movie execs who, as Robert Winfrey and I talked about on Daniel Hollywood, invest themselves in these movie projects, and, you know, they're paid a lot of money to guide ships. And a lot of these people lose their jobs after a while when they guide these ships into icebergs. But that's, that's what happens, is they get involved and they, uh, they have a belief or they have data that says, this, this is good, this is bad, do this, not that. And that gets into the movie process. Um, and, you know, you, you have the success or failure record that they've got. The, specifically the DC Cinematic Universe, its biggest problem was that in the wake of the Avengers, they were trying to respond at Comic-Con to that. And all they had had in the can at that point was Man of Steel. And so they basically were like, fuck. You know, cinematic universes clearly produce billion-dollar projects. We need to catch up to Marvel. But but all they had done at that point was Man of Steel. 
which was never intended to start off a cinematic universe and was really the wrong way to do it to begin with. But, again, Warner Brothers just saw money. They saw the success of the Avengers, and they saw Comic-Con coming up, and it's like, we, we have to respond. You know, and they responded with, we're going to do Batman versus Superman. That's our response to this. They did that without any plan, without a story, and the only reason why it's not as bad as it could have been was that Zack Snyder pretty much demanded another year. So it was delayed one year so that it could be visually better than it was, than, visually better than what it would have been on the timetable he was originally given. The other problem mm-hmm. coming out of that was, like, if you look at what went into Suicide Squad, um, they went into shooting that with, like, a rough threat. I, I, I want to say whoever wrote that thing had basically sketches of a naked Harley Quinn that he submitted in some dialogue. They were like, shoot it, go. <laughs> Yeah, it was like shit written on the back of a fortune cookie, um, and you know, and so they really didn't have a tight script. They ran in with like a first draft, and they and Warner Brothers was like, "Go, go, go!" because they had because the other thing they did after that was they made a list. You see, <laughs> they're like, "Okay, we're gonna do Batman versus Superman," and here's a fucking list of the movies we're gonna do. And it was just like they looked at the DC catalog and went. What are your top sellers? That's what we're going to make a list out of. Um, that's what we're going to make movies out of. And that's really what it was. There's no plan here. There was no overarching story like there was with Marvel. Um, and so they rushed projects into production and started shooting projects before they were well-defined. And then, they, and then, due to responses they were getting, changed the projects entirely. So, like, Batman v Superman had reshoots, which in and of themselves are not bad things, but that got changed from what it initially had intended to be. And Suicide Squad was completely altered from what the intention was, which is why there's basically another movie, movie's worth of footage of the Joker and Harley Quinn lying on the cutting room floor that we'll never see, much to Jared Leto's regret. Well, no, I'm, I'm I'm fine with that because... Jared Leto is a heaping pile of twat frosting. Um, and so I'm happy he got cut almost entirely out of the movie. And that's not just because I object to his portrayal of the Joker. It's because, if anything, that is largely what, we lo- what we've learned from the making of that movie, is that Jared Leto is really a pretty wretched human being. Um, and... I absolutely hope that he never gets anywhere near a DC movie again. And I would agree with you. Uh, David Ayer, it seems, had control of this movie taken from him. I would not go so far as to still say it was good when we saw the director's cut. And uh, by the way, might I say, I I have a conspiracy theory. God, if I keep coming up with these, I'm going to start to sound like Napier. Um, uh, as to why this has become such a thing. And it has nothing to do with showing the director's vision. Sometimes I think it's the fact that they figure apologies that lets them get away with releasing a shit movie into theaters in the first place. And they say, oh, well, you know, we'll just have the director go and say that it wasn't his entire vision and that you should really check out the, blue, the unrated Blu-ray 
when it comes out to, to really see a whole different version of the movie. And it might change your mind about mind about it, man. Um, it's the same thing that allows AAA video game publishers to get away with releasing seemingly half-finished shit like Assassin's Creed <laughs> Unity because they figure, oh, well, who cares if it's borked as fuck? Uh, we'll just issue a day one patch, and that'll fix about 10% of it, and then we'll fix, we'll release a day two patch, and a day four patch, and a day 15 patch, and, you know, then we'll, then we'll offer uh, people who bought the games a free Ubisoft game under the explicit condition that they not sue us for how bad the game was. You joke, this happened. Um, and it's it's a way to get around not actually releasing a good finished movie. They figure, ah, so what if it sucks? We'll just recut it and make a whole other mint off the uh, rental and home video market. And I'm really glad we've had a chance to talk about this for a little bit because I've been trying to find something on Comic Story and for when we do plugs. Um, and I haven't been able to find what I wanted because I don't think it exists, but I found something almost even better. Uh, so do you want to do plugs first or should I? No, I'll go ahead. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you have the final word. I do uh, want to <laughs> ask you, though, because it's coming up shortly. Have you thought about what we're doing after X-Men Origins? Because we have a show coming up on March 16th. And that's your pick, buddy. <laughs> I've been looking, and I got a few in mind. Let me get back to you tomorrow. Uh, once I've had a chance okay. to kind of sleep on my choices. But yes, I have a okay. few. I have a few in mind. I do. Woo! Um, um, yeah. <laughs> in the archives, we've got some celebration of the Lego Movie and a little mini review that I did on the show. Source material: Batman '66 Volume One. Uh, that's in the archives. Uh, I, I need to address the show from Tuesday. Uh, Talk Radio. Uh, <laughs> that's the explanation. Um, no, uh, basically, uh, the first 20 minutes of the show, I couldn't. There was some sort of behind the scenes technical issue that was happening. I couldn't be heard, um, and I couldn't hear anything else that was happening. And I was, uh, and my poor guest, you know, decided to kind of sit there while I scrambled to fix the problem. And it really was a block truck radio thing. It had nothing to do with me. Uh, but the, the, the good people over at BTR just reset the show after about 20 minutes of this. And then from there on, we did about an hour, hour and 10 minutes talking about Chef's Table season one. And if you ever get to hear it, it's great. Here's the problem. If you go in the archives right now, what you hear is the first 20 minutes of me playing random music, including the TV party theme at least a half a dozen times. So I'm waiting for Block Talk Radio to fix that. I've already complained, and I, no one, and I was told it was going to get handled. No one's gotten back to me, and I'm paying 40 bucks a month. That includes... Uh, help anytime I need it, and as of right now, it says, "Hey, our on our uh, online agents are not available." Fuck you, people. Anywho, uh, 
So uh, we had no problem with Metal Hammer of Doom. Uh, the third chair, Jesse Stark, who sat this one out, though, he, was, uh, he had the projectile leprosy. So it was just me and the Coopster. Uh, and, a, and a special appearance by uh, Pat Mullen channeling his inner Jeff Jarrett as he did uh, drive-by karaoke, as we called it. He sang With My Baby Tonight. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, next week, right here on the RIBN, uh, source material, got the Legends of the Dark Claw. Uh, Pat Mullen, in his angelic voice, will be on TV Party tonight, and we will be looking at the first ten episodes, season one, of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. And speaking of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, Metal Hammer of Doom will be reviewing the new Steel Panther, Lower the Bar. And speaking of Robert Winfrey, uh, he'll be on Because Winfrey Made Me, uh, we'll be looking at the movie Ink. And then Friday, uh, we'll be unveiling our announcement of Wolverine Week and the subsequent panel discussion of Wolverine the character. Uh, Wolver- that's going to be followed by Wolverine Week. Uh, source material, Old Man Logan on March 6th. Uh, the return of Damn You Hollywood for the month of March will begin with Logan. Uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom will be chiming in with their uh, participation in Wolverine Week with Entombed Wolverine Blues. That's a real thing, people. And finally, myself and Sean will be back in the courtroom putting X-Men Origins Wolverine on trial. And I assume <laughs> we shall resume our current roles as prosecutor in defense? Well, we never decided who was... Uh who was prosecuting and who was defending that one. Um, and actually, you know what? Uh, since, I, since I prosecuted, you defended. And in fact, um, I believe you've defended twice in a row. So I believe it's my turn uh, to defend Wolverine, which I'm, I'm comfortable with because while I don't like it as a whole, I think there are things about it that never quite get the credit that they deserve. Okay. They, they te- yeah, they, they tend to really get lost in the discussion of everything else that was, oh, so very wrong, it should be studied. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I did defend the movie a little bit in the discussion of Wolverine, so I'm good with that. I'll, he will... Uh... I will uh, change sides here, and I will be fine with prosecuting this puppy. Yep. All right. Um, that's all for my plugs. Go ahead and do your thing, babe. Okay. Well, mine's going to be pretty short. Thank you, one and all, to everybody who listens live, who downloads, who likes it and tells a friend, who doesn't like it and tells somebody who guts that they hate. Thank you all again <laughs> for the support. Uh, it means the world to us entertaining you all and informing you is the reason why we do what we do. With that being said, if you have found me either entertaining or informative, first off, double those appointments with your shrink. There's something really, really wrong with you there. And But you know what? If you want a good, another good dose of vitamin S, uh, Oh, God, uh, never let me say that ever again um, as a pickup line or otherwise. <laughs> uh, times like this, I'm glad Scarlett does listen to the show every week. Uh, 
but if you would if you would like to hear some more of me talking about nerdy things I'm obsessed with, or if you would like like to perhaps read written versions of that, uh, say perhaps on nights when you can't catch WWE Network specials, you might want to go and check out FPG News on March 5th, where I will once more have the Comer Codex live with full live match-by-match results all evening of WWE Fastlane. It's the last pay-per-view before WrestleMania 33, or, I don't know, last year was WrestleMania Bullhead, and before that it was WrestleMania Play Button, um, WrestleMania Shuffle, uh <laughs> WrestleMania Pro, WrestleMania Air, uh, WrestleMania Vista, um, WrestleMania Tournament Edition. I, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Chime in on your with your comments on March fifth, while I sit through Fast Lane and pray that something gives me a few more reasons to be hopeful about this year's grandest stage of them all. In the meantime, I will be everywhere Mark said that I will be. Uh, in particular, I'm really looking forward to defending Wol- to defending Wolverine. One, because I like a challenge, and two, because uh, there's some parts of it that aren't going to be nearly as difficult as I'm probably thinking. In the meantime, uh, if you'd like to see a good example of Catwoman portrayed in a little bit of a humorous atmosphere with a lighter bent to it, I would strongly recommend going over to YouTube and checking out Comic Storian's Complete Story episode, Harley Quinn Road Trip. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is a condensed version of an arc involving a cross-country road trip uh, with Poison Ivy, Selena Kyle, and Harley Quinn. Yeah. Um, it is every bit as much fun as it sounds like it would be. And, in fact, uh, it's, it was good enough that I picked up comic, checked it out myself. It is really excellent. Uh, seriously, it is superb. And for a good overall super serial, y'all, Catwoman story, uh, go and check out Catwoman When in Rome, uh, which is uh, written by one of my all-time favorite comic creative minds, Jeff Loeb, uh, I, I I always forget who drew it. Uh, I know it wasn't Jim Lee because uh, Jim Lee was the one who did Hush with Jeff. But it's a great story that involves Selena Kyle traveling to Italy with the Riddler to uh, finally, once and for all, uh, kind of unravel the myth of her parentage. It's a continuation from both Batman the Long Halloween and Batman Dark Victory. Uh, again, four stars. Joe Bob says check it out. If you get that, congratulations. You grew up around the same time I did. But otherwise, uh, thank you to Mark for being such a wonderful counterpart and putting up with my smart-assy sense of humor. Uh, Thank you, you all, for listening. And this is the one and only Sean Comer. That is the guy that you're not. And I'm reminding you to never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. All right, once again, this has been a Rattlish and Broadcasting Network presentation of the podcast on trial, Catwoman. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, I applaud you. 
And uh, I hope you'll join us again for our next courtroom drama. Be well, be safe, and behave. Court is now adjourned.